But here's another situation where you have not just a story of Jesus with his disciples, but a story of the risen Jesus with his disciples. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for tuning in to the 82nd episode of Working with the Word. This is it. We have reached the end of the Gospel of John. And if you have stuck with us for the past 14 months, as it's taken us since August 2021 to work through this incredible book, we want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Today, we are closing out our study in chapter 21 as a kind of epilogue to the whole Gospel. One of the first thoughts we might have as we read through this chapter is, John could have easily ended in chapter 20. The last few verses of chapter 20 are kind of the purpose statement of John and kind of wrap it up nicely. But obviously there's an an additional chapter. Why? Before we get there, we want to remind you to grab your Bible and read the chapter on your own before hearing our thoughts on it. And if you wish, you can listen to us read it in episode 78, beginning at about 1650 to 2030. So like Emerson mentioned, we're looking at this final chapter in John, and just like he mentioned before, encouraging you to do some of your own observation here, whether through your recent observation or just through that kind of thought at the beginning, we look at this and just some interesting thoughts about why this chapter is here. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have just one chapter about Jesus' resurrection. And somewhere within that is also the Great Commission, given in some degree, not always the same way. There's sometimes some other details. I think about Luke, and he talks about the two men on the road to Emmaus. You think about Matthew and him talking about the Roman guards and some of the things that they have to go through and worry about with Jesus' body being gone from the tomb. But in my opinion, John's equivalent to that would be John chapter 20, where you see, you know, Jesus is resurrected. You have kind of similar thoughts about, you know, the women are there first, and then they go and tell the disciples. And in some way, Jesus gives kind of that great commission statement. We see something kind of like that in John chapter 20, uh, kind of verses 21 through 23 within some of that thought in there. And then there's that great purpose statement like you talked about, Mm -hmm. you know, having this great faith in Jesus and all the signs that he did, but knowing that We have what we need to have faith in him. So it's not uncommon, at least in my mind, as we read John 21 to kind of think, okay, why is this here? Why this story about that one time that Peter and some of the other apostles were going fishing and then Jesus, you know, being there and, you know, all the stuff that goes on within this chapter. Some secondary points we think about maybe from that first with that considered question is the fact that we see more detail in here about things of, uh, not not necessarily more detail of like diving deeper into the resurrection, but just the fact that John gives detail. Mm-hmm. He gives the type of fire that's going on. He gives the number of fish. He gives how far away things are. Again, giving some reliability to his account of this being a real event. We have a very important section that I'm going to be talking about a little bit. We kind of might call it Peter's restoration. We see him affirming his love for the Lord even after denying the Lord just a few chapters earlier. But I think that the main reason that we have this chapter is that this is more eyewitness evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. You have two resurrection accounts so far between John chapter 20 with him appearing to 
called in the 10 because Thomas isn't there. Mm-hmm. And then the 11, when Thomas is there later on, you have some of those, whether they're the same accounts being referenced in the Synoptic Gospels or kind of various ideas, you have those there as well. But here's another situation where you have not just a story of Jesus with his disciples, but a story of the risen Jesus mm-hmm. with his disciples. And we're showing that Jesus truly is risen from the dead. Just on a very quick statement or thinking about some of that apologetically, the resurrection was not just a one-time hallucination by John or even a two-time hallucination by John and maybe the rest of the disciples, but we're seeing more and more evidence of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus did rise from the dead, then we have every reason to put our faith in him and to believe in him, thinking that, yeah, maybe chapter 20, 30, and 31 are a great tie, and maybe they are still the great tie and the great button on all of this, But reading this chapter, again, looking back to that, as we'll kind of make some ties at the end of our episode today, to say even this chapter is pointing to the fact that Jesus did many things that aren't recorded in all of the Gospels or given all the accounts of Jesus' life. But we have things that we're given, like these details here, so that we can put our faith in Jesus and look for that eternal life that comes through him. So... A great conclusion in verse twenty, or chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, but an important chapter here about the resurrected Jesus. So let's talk about the first half of this chapter or so and kick it over to Emerson for where we have breakfast with Jesus. Yeah, so we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 with that. And I think before we move into that, I think it was really helpful what you said there that this chapter looks back to John's purpose statement at the end of chapter 20. Every, everything before those verses in chapter 20 look forward to that, but this is just looking back. So you get all of it kind of centered there. And there's just, again, another another thing that reinforces the resurrection of Jesus. And I think that ties into the purpose of this first story that we have in chapter 21 with Jesus providing fish. The point of this first mm-hmm. story is actually emphasized both the beginning of the story and at the end in verse 1 of chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. And so John is telling us two times that what Jesus is doing is he's showing himself. And then at the end of that section in verse 14, this was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so John loves these numbered lists. We've got a numbered list of signs we've seen. John loves the number seven. He's given us seven I am's. Here's another one of these lists in John. It doesn't go up to the the number seven, but you have him giving another list. This is Jesus appearing to his disciples three times. And I think, you know, it kind of ties into what everything he's been trying to get us to understand. And this this account is a nice wrap-up to the entire gospel. I think what Jesus is wanting his disciples to see is that he is the same Jesus that they knew from the very beginning. And note these callbacks to what we've seen already in the gospel. Verse 2 mentions Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, Zebedee's sons, who would be James and John, and two of the other disciples. And Simon says, I'm going fishing. Two of those disciples are the ones that we found in chapter 1, Simon and Nathaniel. And maybe even some of the unnamed disciples are there as well. But we've got two of these same disciples who are mentioned in chapter 1 being called to follow Jesus. We have the Sea of Tiberias, which is the same as the Sea of Galilee. 
And in chapter 2, Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, in Cana of Galilee. That's where he performed his first miracle or his first sign, as John calls it. And so a lot of, most of what happens in John is actually in Judea or near Jerusalem. But on either side, you've got Jesus doing something in Galilee with his disciples. Maybe a, a small detail that may or may not have significance, but in uh, verse 9 and 10, Jesus feeds his disciples bread and fish, and which recalls John chapter 6, Jesus providing food, mm-hmm. you know, multiplying the loaves and the fish. And again, eating is just another way Jesus is showing that he's not a ghost. He's not some apparition or some spirit. You don't see like food particles falling <laughs> out of his belly like you would see in, in cartoons. Yeah. And so he's giving them again evidence. And in verse 12, Jesus tells them, come and have breakfast. And it says, none of them dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Again, that's the point. They are coming to understand that this is the same Jesus that they were with in the beginning and in the middle and up to the very end. It's not a different Jesus. It's the same one. So this is a nice wrap up to the Gospel of John. I would even say that this account of the fish is a nice wrap up to all of the Gospels. And I think it's when we come to a story in the Bible or in the Gospels, I think it's most helpful to start with, okay, what is this what does this do standing alone in the gospel itself? Right. But also, it can be helpful to look at parallels to other gospels. And we've tried to do that from time to time when we thought it was fitting. But I think there are so many parallels to Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, mm-hmm. when Jesus first called his disciples, these same disciples, to become fishers of men. And if you read the two accounts side by side, they are almost the exact same event. They're not. Mm-hmm. One is at the beginning of his ministry, or the disciples following, and one is at the very end. So here's, here's some of those parallels. In Luke chapter 5, it says that Jesus got into Simon's boat, and they're at the Sea of Galilee. Three of the seven disciples that are here in John 21 are also there present in Luke chapter 5. We also find that in both stories, they fished all night. These professional fishermen fish all night without catching a single fish. And you see Jesus showing up, and saying, hey, try here. Why don't you cast your net on the right side of the boat or cast into deep water? And they do that, and they find this huge catch of fish. So many that in Luke 5, the net starts to tear and the boat starts to sink. John 21 says the nets did not tear, despite the fact that there were so many fish. And then immediately following that sign or that miracle in both accounts, there's a conversation with Peter or Simon about following him. In Luke 5, Peter casts himself at the Lord's feet and says, Go away from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And then right after this, we'll get into John 21, verse 15, beginning, where that's where Jesus asks him, Do you love me? And so all all of that, I think, is intended to be like deja vu to the disciples. Hey, we've seen this before. We've been in this exact situation before. And in fact, after they, they catch this large mess of fish, John is the one that says, It is the Lord. And there was something about that that they recognized. They recognized it was Jesus by his works. And so I think one of the things we can take from this is Jesus seems to be reminding his disciples of their greater mission that he gave them from the very beginning. Now he's going to call them to be fishers of men. And that has a lot more meaning to them because they have been with Jesus. 
they see what he has done, they've listened to his teaching, and so he's kind of reaffirming, he's kind of re-energizing them or reminding them of their mission to go out into the world as fishers of men. There's a lot more detail that we could spend time talking about, but kind of as a whole, this story just nicely wraps up <laughs> the the story of Jesus. Yeah. And there's still more loose ends that have to be tied up, specifically with Peter. I think you're going to talk about that. You're going to help us see that that Jesus had not given up on Peter. Right. When you look at the other gospel accounts, you kind of get the impression that the disciples, once they see the risen Lord, recognize that you know, he is absolutely worthy of them following him and devoting their lives to him. You know, even if all we had, I think about maybe if it was just Luke and Acts, you kind of have Luke's account of the gospel and life of Jesus and then kind of what happens after Jesus' resurrection. You'd have a picture of people who, before Jesus was crucified, kind of terrified, after seeing Jesus risen from the dead, obviously there's great conviction and faith with him. But John gives us this very interesting detail here of Peter's, as some people refer to it as kind of his restoration. For a second, think back to John chapter 18, and particularly John chapter 18, verse 18, when Peter is with John and is eventually going to be caught denying Jesus three times throughout that chapter. There's a mention of they're warming themselves by a charcoal fire. And when you look at John chapter 21 and verse 9, they get out from their boats, they get onto land, and they see Jesus with fish and bread by a charcoal fire. And so here we are around verse 15 by this charcoal fire, having this experience. And in my mind, you know, there's kind of this, Peter and Jesus have kind of somewhat have this conversation amongst themselves in a group. And, and Jesus speaks to Simon Peter and says, Simon, do you love me more than these? Immediately kind of raising some questions for us of what is Jesus saying within that question. Simon, do you love me more than these? And then the Net Bible translating that, do you love me more than these do? As probably many people seem to interpret that question, what Jesus is saying. Uh, some, when they look at that question, do you love me more than these? Think maybe Jesus is pointing to kind of the big, large amount of fish and to the fishing boats, thinking kind of like, you know, are you really prepared to give up this career to follow me and to go and preach the gospel for me? There are some that maybe think that Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these? Kind of looking at the other six men there at the beach and thinking kind of like, do you are you really more devoted or are you willing to devote yourself more than these other men are? Both of those, reading them and thinking them, maybe is a possibility. Seems kind of sim- silly, though, Simon knowing the resurrected Lord that he is going to those particular areas. Uh, one possibility that makes sense to me, doesn't mean that that's the right answer because it makes sense to me, but makes sense to me <laughs> is that Jesus is, uh, in a sense, kind of testing Peter's confidence from before his denial. Uh, remember in John chapter 13 and verse 37, Peter's all gung-ho about, like, mm-hmm. I'm going to go with you. Even if I must die, I'll go with you. And in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 33, Peter says, even if everyone else falls away because of you, I will never fall away. So maybe... Jesus begins this conversation by kind of leaning into that aspect of like, hey, Peter, do you remember when you said that everyone else might give up on you, but you're going to love me more even than they did? Where are we on that? Do you love me that much? And so three times throughout this section, just kind of giving this simplification, even though they might be worded a little bit differently, uh, Jesus asks essentially, do you love me? Three times Peter responds, yes, Lord, 
you know I love you, or something to that regard. And then three times Peter speaks to the work that Peter needs to do in tending to the sheep, whether it be feeding the lambs, feeding the sheep, leading my sheep. And it seems that that's something that Peter did fulfill. As we look in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 4, as he talks to other elders, other shepherds, and reminds them of their responsibility to the chief shepherd, kind of as John talks about it, as the good shepherd there. All of this section in here, as Peter and Jesus are having this conversation, seems to be meant as a strong contrast between the three interactions here and the three denials of Jesus by Peter. So thus, especially highlighting the Lord's forgiveness for Peter and the Lord's faith in Peter and his you know, fact that I know that you love me and I, I see that and I want you to know that I have work for you to do. And he talks about that, this kind of, you're going to feed my sheep. Although there's more to this conversation and the fact that in verse 18 and verse 19, we learn that Peter is going to die a martyr's death. It seems to be that's what Jesus is implying through all of that. And as tradition says, there's the implication that Peter is going to be crucified in a way similar to Jesus. Uh, I think that tradition goes on to say that Peter wanted to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified the exact same way the Lord was. But even some of the language in here in this chapter, your hands will be stretched out. They're going to tie you and carry you where you do not want to go. That's crucifixion kind of talk as they would have get people ready for crucifixion or bound them for crucifixion. Even in some of that in verse 19, he said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. John's used phrases similar to that already in John chapter 12 and verse 33 and John chapter 18 and verse 32 to indicate what kind of death he must die, speaking about Jesus mm -hmm. and that talking about crucifixion or talking about the death and kind of doing the work that would glorify the Lord and would fulfill his father's plan. So within all of this, you see a very close conversation with Peter, but something that we'll see play out in the rest of Peter's life and the interactions we look at Peter through the book of Acts or think about him being mentioned in the book of Galatians or especially when we read his letters in the latter part of his life in First or Second Peter, just really giving us some wonderful detail here of Jesus interacting with, again, not just Jesus, but the resurrected Jesus. I was just going to add one quick thing. It's amazing that that Peter continued to follow Jesus, even though Jesus told him, essentially, you're going to be crucified for me. And he, he kept going. <laughs> you know, he was very courageous and certainly loved the Lord in that way. Absolutely. And we see all this about Peter. There is this, as we read it, probably in verse 20 through verse 23, kind of a humorous almost section of Peter still kind of being Peter as we know him from <laughs> the rest of the Gospels. Even just the way it's described in the CSB, Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them. We've talked multiple times about how that seems to be talking about John. So there's been this conversation between Peter and John, or between Peter and Jesus, excuse me. I don't know if John was like trying to, you know, catch a glimpse of some of that, or if he was just happened to be close by. And Peter's basically kind of like, well, what about that guy? Especially after just being told that he's going to die basically for Jesus. Mm -hmm. And Jesus's essential response to that is, so what about him? You know, I'm talking to you basically right here, right now. Again, not an exact maybe one-to-one -one comparison here, but something that's reminded for us is sometimes when we're talking with others, or probably more importantly, we should think about sometimes when we're reflecting upon what the truth is saying to us and what the scriptures are saying to us and how we need to apply them, we read something and think, well, what about my neighbor who needs to blah, 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 blah? And it's like, okay, well, 
you know, the Lord will, will work with your neighbor and work through your neighbor and do what he needs to do or your brother or sister in church or, or whatever. But the Lord is speaking to you right now. And what are you going to do with that message? It may be that someone else needs to hear that message too, and they need to shape up or they need to do this or do that. And they'll get to that. But Jesus is speaking to you at the moment, and he's speaking through his word to you. Uh, we see that here in the life of Peter and John. Especially, it seems, John wanted to tell almost kind of this whole story to get some information about himself and clear it from the air. Similar to what we see in the book of Matthew, when Matthew spends some time towards the end of his gospel to kind of dispel a rumor that Jesus' disciples had stolen his body and that the guards that were placed at the tomb, you know, just fallen asleep and slacked on the job. Uh, John is looking to dispose a rumor and the fact that, you know, Jesus has said some things, he might remain until I come. And what is that to you? You know, you need to follow me. That's Jesus' real impression here to Peter. You're going to follow me in verse 19. You need to follow me in verse 22. Verse 23, John's basically saying, so people chill out about me. You know, it seems that maybe John is most likely the last written gospel, uh, maybe some of the last of the apostles at this point, or the last of the apostles. And some people might be saying some things about John about like, oh, you know, John's going to live forever until Jesus comes back. And John basically being like, I'm not immortal. You know, I, I, I just understand this is what said. he says, if I wanted to remain till I come, what is that to you? And just kind of the fact that I'm just a guy and I'm just a follower of Jesus who's preaching and teaching about Jesus. But I think the amazing thing through all of that is, like you said, the fact that we see Peter not giving up on the Lord, and especially we don't see the Lord giving up on Peter through these encounters together and these interactions together, and their important resolve to, to follow the Lord and do what he says. Absolutely. So these are the final work. So these are the final words of the Gospel of John. I'll just read verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which, if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. It's such an epic way to end, <laughs> in my mind. It's just such a, such a powerful way to end. And what is being said here are really serving three purposes. Mm -hmm. Number one, the author is signing off as the author and testifying to the authenticity of the book. Verse 20 mentions that Peter looked back at the disciple whom Jesus loved and saw him following him. You know, throughout our discussions of John, we've assumed that that's John. I think that's the traditional understanding. Well, in verse 24, he identifies himself as that disciple is the one who is testifying to these things. And these things I take to be not just this one little conversation that between Jesus and John and Peter, I think I take that to be this entire book. Um, and so he is saying, these things are true. If he was the gospel, if he was the apostle John, then he's an eyewitness, obviously. He's saying, I testify personally to these things. But also in that same verse, you have someone else saying, it appears, we know that his testimony is true. And so others are attesting to the authenticity of this book. We don't know who that was. It could have been other apostles. If they're alive at this point, we, it, it could be that there weren't, because we know John, like you said, is the last one alive. It could be another group of eyewitnesses. We don't have a way of knowing who the we is there, but what it does do is it affirms that what was written in John is consistent with the widely accepted set of facts 
that were understood to be true in that day. You know, this this didn't come out hot off the press and somebody be like, oh, well, this is this is very different than what we understand about Jesus. You know, a very different picture of, of Jesus, kind of like what, you know, the Gnostic Gospels present an entirely different picture of who Jesus was. Yeah. No, there were people that were saying, we know that this is true. It's self-authenticating. We know that this is uh, truly what Jesus did and said. And then finally, in verse 25, you've got this caveat, may not be the right word, but that's the only one I could think of at the time. The author, John, is essentially saying, Jesus did so much more that cannot possibly be written down. And I think the implication goes back to, again, our, our purpose statement that these have been written so that you may believe. So John is saying to us that this isn't exhaustive of everything Jesus ever did and said, but what he has written down for us is sufficient to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. And to quote Jeff, uh, in our preparation, he said, and I thought this was really good, if all we had was the Gospel of John, it would be enough to see Jesus as the Son of God. I think that is true. That's not a knock against the other Gospels at all. It's not to say that we don't need them at all. But John's presentation of Jesus is sufficient to show us that he is the Son of God. And what's amazing about this, what is amazing to me, is that I have grown a lot from this. My understanding of Jesus has deepened. I've become more appreciative of him and his sacrifice. But what we've read is just a small slice of what Jesus actually did and said. What if we knew more? (laughs) Then our appreciation would only just increase from there. So as we give a final challenge for our studies in John, we want to think about something that kind of bookends the whole book as far as in chapter 1, Jesus calls a group of men and tells them, follow me. And here we see that being a bookend in sense there again in verse 19 and in verse 22, he speaks to Peter and says, follow me. We want you to put Jesus's call, follow me in your own words, not as if you're calling people to follow you. That should not be the takeaway (laughs) from this. If we learned anything, we recognize that we don't have the authority and the divine nature that Jesus does to make a statement like that. But basically what we're asking is, what is Jesus asking us to do? And maybe think about Peter and John within this gospel and kind of beyond as well and think, what did that mean for their lives to follow Jesus? Put that in your word. And what we mean by that sometimes is don't just give the, what I call the stereotypical Bible class answer, but meditate on that. Maybe think about that. It's not fair to say you have to write three paragraphs about it, but write, you know, thinking or, you know, meditate on that question in a way that you think I'm, I'm really considering this and what Jesus wants me to do as I'm seeing who he is as the son of God and putting my faith in him and following him and looking for that eternal life that I'll have with him forever. Thank you for tuning into Working with the Word today. Once again, thank you for studying the Gospel of John with us. In the next few episodes, we will have some exciting interviews to share with you about how to study a Bible theme connected with difficult passages, as well as our final four series in November and December about devotional reading. We're really looking forward to sharing those with you. Until then, if there are questions or topics or books of the Bible or difficult passages you would like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook at Working with the Word, 
on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Thank you.